I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball. Put a bookmark, of course, in Acts 16. Today we're going to read verses 16 through 40. But first, uh, would you turn with me to Psalm 2? Uh, Psalm 2. We'll look at Psalm 2 first and then look at Acts 16. So I struggled this week trying to find the main driving point behind this sermon. I did my reading. I compiled notes. I looked at some interesting words in the Greek. And this is a wonderful text. The story of Paul's arrest and the conversion of the Philippian jailer. It's a fantastic narrative. You'd think it'd be kind of a home run text. What I've come to see, I want to describe it to you this way. A sermon is a lot like climbing a rock wall. I don't know if you have much experience rock climbing. Um, You have to stand back and look at the wall before you start climbing. And look at the different, different features and cracks and outcroppings and holds. For, for you to grasp hold of, and you do that, and then you pick out your route and figure out how you're going to climb the wall. If you don't do that, you'll start climbing in one direction, then come back down, and then try another one, and uh, those make for not the best sermons. And so I was, I've been looking at the wall this week, trying to figure out how, how do I scale this? And it was uh, that hospice visit on Friday that helped me. Uh, This lady who was somewhat worried that I was not the the blessed the perfect blessed man in Psalm 1 uh, is the same woman who had, uh, in our conversation it came up, she'd been spending way too much time watching cable news. She was all worked up in a tizzy about our government. And so I thought, well, I'll just read Psalm 1 and then just keep going and read Psalm 2. And it hit me while I was reading it. This is the route. This is how I'm climbing this text, which, I, I mean, this is the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't, how do you get from Acts 16 to Psalm 2? But I want to read it for you. You can follow along. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That is Psalm 2. And as we look at this narrative in Acts 16, I want you to watch for the rulers setting themselves and taking counsel against the Lord. Watch for them plotting in vain. Also watch for the laughter of the one who is sitting in heaven as the ends of the earth are claimed as his possession. And then finally, watch for the promise at the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's where we're going. But before we read this narrative, let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father God, we remember that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Would you equip your people this morning through the reading and preaching of your word? Give us ears to hear and cultivate our faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. Acts 16, beginning in verse 16. 16, 16 is where we're starting. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison 
and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. When he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent uh, to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I want to remind you where we are this morning. Uh, Paul and company have begun their second missionary journey. Last week, we saw them leave Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and enter Europe for the first time into modern-day Greece. And this is just a fun historical note that roughly 500 years prior to that, 500 years prior to Paul, Xerxes, the emperor of Persia, was attempting something similar as told by Herodotus, the Greek historian. Xerxes was crossing from Asia into Europe, and there's a stretch there called the Dardanelles, or the Hellespont. It goes from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean, and it's a natural, uh, it's a natural barrier, but Xerxes 
constructed a pontoon bridge to span this gap so that his Persian army could cross this bridge and invade Greece. We know that this invasion led to a ton of memorable stories, such as the Battle of Thermopylae with the 300 Spartans. But in Acts 16, I want you to see that there's another invasion. In the eyes of the world, it is not nearly as impressive as Xerxes' pontoon bridge. It's an invasion that goes altogether unnoticed. The residents of Macedonia have no idea who and what has just landed on their continent. The Apostle Paul and his companions arrive in Europe in the name and the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Xerxes referred to himself as the King of Kings. Well, Xerxes died and stayed in the grave. The true King of Kings rose and sent his apostles to Europe to bring his good news. And that message has taken root in Philippi and it's going to spread throughout Europe and is going to change world history indelibly. So that's where we are. The city of Philippi, uh, we were told last week that once he gets there, there's no synagogue present because of the tiny Jewish population, but they do find a small group of women outside of the city praying by the riverside, and one of those women is Lydia. The Lord brought her to faith. Luke tells us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And we see Lydia and her family as the first European converts that we're told of in the New Testament. Lydia, being wealthy, invites them to stay in her home. This is where the first uh, Philippian church meets. Uh, The beachhead for the gospel invasion of Greece has been established. But whenever you have a beachhead, there's going to be a counterattack by the defenders, and we see that come this week. The counterattack at first is very subtle. There is an attempt by the enemy of our souls. We need to know that that's, that's the primary motivator, the primary person behind what we're going to see here. The enemy of our souls wishes to undermine and compromise the gospel. And the first attempt he tries is very subtle. Luke says that there's a young woman who is trapped in the occult. She had a spirit of divination. We're told she was a fortune teller. She was also a slave. She belonged to someone else. And the way we're told it worked, her owners would pimp out her services. A customer would arrive, pay the owners. She would enter a trance-like state and then give them information concerning their future. And this young lady is really trapped in dire straits. Not only 
is she enslaved to human masters, but she's enslaved to an evil spirit. The Greek literally says here, a girl having a spirit of Python met us. Python was a character from Greek mythology. He was, you guessed it, a snake that guarded the temple of Apollo. And whenever someone, usually a priestess, would involuntarily speak from the gods, it was said that she had the spirit of Python. I mean, just the image that that brings to our mind of a constricting snake in total control of its victim, that is this young woman's situation. Seemingly hopeless. Well, she, not by her own power, begins to follow Paul and company. To stalk them, really. And she would cry out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That's what she's saying. And Luke says she continues to do this for many days. Now, is she telling the truth? Sure. They are servants of the Most High. They are proclaiming the way of salvation. But what is the motivation? I don't think it's a good motivation. Because we see Paul's reaction to this. We are told that he was greatly annoyed. And if the incident with John, Mark, and Barnabas taught us anything, it's that Paul does not want anything or anyone hindering his ministry. And that's what she is doing. It's not that he does not want to be associated with sinners. It's that she is actively hindering his ministry. This is an attempt to infiltrate the mission, to have something openly demonic associated and allied with Christ's work. Everyone would have thought that this evil spirit inhabiting this girl was in collusion with Paul. Okay. I don't want to be this type of preacher, but there is an illustration here that is just begging. And I'm going to stay as neutral as possible. Okay? What does the word collusion bring to your mind? You remember the allegation against President Trump colluding with Russia during the 2016 election. It is an accusation that cost millions of dollars to investigate. It's an accusation that dogged the president almost his entire term, where he couldn't talk about the things he wanted to talk about. He couldn't answer other questions because everyone was just concerned with asking about collusion. Were you a cat's paw of the Russians? And it hindered his work. And by the way, interesting news is finally starting to come out about the source of those allegations, but I'll leave that reading to you. 
But just the same thing is happening here. Paul's ministry is being hindered by this association with a girl who has a demonic spirit. This, this, uh, this perception of collusion that could hinder his credibility. It could hinder his authority, the authority that he has from Christ. He, he understood that allowing this satanically influenced fortune teller to make these claims was undercutting his work. And so he's greatly annoyed. We're told that he casts out the demon for disrupting his ministry. He turned and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. This wouldn't make a good Hollywood horror movie. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out, and it comes out. We see the same thing in Jesus' ministry, don't we? A, A demon would confirm who he was, the Son of God, and Jesus would rebuke the Spirit, silence them, and order them to leave. Same thing is happening. And I'm reminded of who Psalm 2 was talking about. You shall break or rule them with an iron rod. Now, there's not an invitation here, but a command. And God works a miracle. Now, we don't hear any more about this, this girl. I believe we have every reason to think she comes to saving faith in the Lord and becomes a part of the church there in Philippi. I don't know why she wouldn't. But one thing we do know uh, for sure is that the owners are not happy about this. We read, When the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Uh, This miracle, casting out the demon, spelled financial disaster for them. Their cash cow was gone. We'll see the same thing happen. I think it's Acts 19 in Ephesus. There's actually going to be a riot. The people who make idols for the temple of Artemis begin to riot because they've lost all their customers. It's the same thing here. They are infuriated that their source of income has ended. And so they seize Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. And and they say, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Notice they didn't mention their financial loss because honestly, I don't think the officials would have cared. Too bad for you. Should have diversified. They instead level more serious charges, disturbing the peace, violating Roman customs. And then just to like prime the people, there's a little anti-Semitism. These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. We see the reaction. Again, uh, looking at Psalm 2, the nation's rage, the people's plot, 
They set themselves against the Lord. And we see that here. There's no formal trial, no due process, no chance to defend themselves, no justice, just blinding evil rage. The mob, the mob is riled up. They join in attacking Paul and Silas. Their clothes are ripped off. And the magistrates order them to be beaten with rods. These are long, stiff sticks. And by the way, this is no mere spanking. History records people who died from such beatings. And Paul actually, in the course of his ministry, endures three of these, three separate occasions. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says three times he was beaten with rods and five times he received 39 lashes from the hands of Jews. And, by the way, he was stoned, which we've seen already. But again, he bore these scars with him for the rest of his life, aching ribs and muscles. You wonder how... All these beatings affected him later in life. You have to wonder if he suffered, especially more in the cold weather. Writing in Second Timothy, he says, bring my coat. But you, wonder how, you wonder how he was affected by this. We're told that after inflicting many, blow, many blows, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was ordered to keep them safely. And so he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. This has been their treatment. I think we would agree with Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he says that I was treated shamefully at Philippi. Well, that evening, Luke fast-forwards to midnight. And there are Paul and Silas, bloody and bruised, but we're told they are praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening. You know, there's, this is something new. This is something entertaining for the prisoners. And we also saw in Lydia's case last week how, how dangerous it can be. It is dangerous for an unbeliever to listen to the gospel. But I just, what I'm struck with is how beautiful those hymns must have been in that dank, dark, vermin-infested hole. Those hymns, what encouragement they would have brought. There's a story that Joe Novenson tells. Joe's a PCA pastor. I think he's probably still at Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga. Um, but he tells this story from earlier in his ministry. He was in a very difficult season. And uh, just life, ministry, everything was just culminating and just wearing him down. And uh, he bottled it all up. And one evening, he's at the church alone, he thinks, and he's in his office, and he just allows himself to break down. And he begins to weep 
at his desk. And uh, all of a sudden, he feels a hand on his shoulder. He had an associate pastor on staff who was there at the office. Heard Joe uh, weeping. This associate pastor was Carl Calverkamp. But Carl hears Joe weeping in his office. Goes in there. Doesn't say a word. Just lays his hand on Joe's shoulder and begins to sing, O love that will not let me go. And Joe still is overcome when he speaks of just how encouraging it was to hear his brother singing those hymns. What a blessing it is for us to pray together, to sing together. That's, that's the blessing they, they had in the jail that night. And listen, they had, they had no reason to expect a miracle. Yes, Peter had been delivered, but Stephen and James... They'd been martyred. And so really they had no idea what the morning would bring, and yet they sang God's praises anyway. Back to Psalm 2. Here's where I think we see the Lord in the heavens laughing, holding his enemies in derision, ridiculing them, mocking them. What about just the disposition of Paul and Silas, what they're doing in that hole. The Lord is saying, you can't take away the joy and the hope that I give to my people. You may beat them, you may lock them up, but they are still going to pray and sing and evangelize. And I'm going to convert prisoners. I'm going to convert the jailer. You cannot stop the advance of the gospel. And in Psalm 2, remember, it's the enemies of God who say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But what happens in Acts 16? A little after midnight, there's an earthquake. So great that the foundations of the prison are shaken. All the doors are opened. And everyone's bonds were unfastened. And God the Father is chuckling. We then have the well-known passage about the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And we aren't going to talk about him this week. His conversation with Paul in verses 30 and 31, I think they need their own sermon. I was convinced at the end of this week I would do those two verses in justice if I tried to squeeze them in. And so next week, my plan is that the entire sermon is those two verses. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's what's coming next week. Those two, that's, that's, that's where we're going But this week, we're just going to skim. The jailer wakes up, sees the doors open, knows the punishment he's going to face, and so instead of facing it, he just decides he's going to take his own life. And Paul stops him. He says, we're still here. 
You aren't in trouble. No one has left. And then the jailer asks that famous question, what must I do to be saved? Apparently, Paul and Barnabas had been talking in prison, and he had been listening. Paul and Silas give him the gospel. They preach Christ, and he is converted there in that prison. And again, we are reminding, we are reminded, there is no stopping this God. He has promised his son, the nations, as his heritage, the ends of the earth, as his possession. No one, nothing is going to stop him. There's a story I remember this morning, and I, try, I, looked, I looked in my seminary notes, and I couldn't find it, and Google failed me. If you know this, tell me this man's name. I'm going to try to research it. It's a story I remember from seminary. There was, there was a man who was in charge of guarding the banned books library in the bowels of the Vatican. Underneath the Vatican, there was this room, this library that contained banned books that people were not allowed to read. And there was a man down there all alone guarding these books, and one day he got curious. And he saw a book titled Institutes of the Christian Religion, by John Calvin, and he read it, and there in the bowels of the Vatican, this man was converted and became a pastor in England. I can't remember his name. I'll try to find it. That's what we see here. And then the narrative ends with these magistrates uh, realizing that they may be in serious legal trouble. The following morning, they send police to let Paul and Silas go. Like, okay, you've had your beating. You've had an overnighter in jail. That'll teach you not to stir things up. Now get out of town. The police come and deliver that message. And then Paul gives a very bold response. Paul says, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. I don't have a whole lot of time to talk about Roman citizenship, but it was important. They had no idea Paul was a Roman citizen. And as one, he had legal protections. He had rights. Uh, It was against Roman law to be beaten, to beat a citizen without trial. And so there could be serious consequences for the officials. We see this. The police report this news. The magistrates are afraid. They come to the prison, apologize to Paul, and bring them out and ask them, just just go. Now, why was it necessary for Paul to do this? It's necessary... Because Paul is publicly vindicated. He and his message and the church in Philippi are legitimized. He refuses to be let off the hook privately. He refuses to have this miscarriage of justice to be swept under the rug. He he refused to allow the idea that he and Silas had committed a crime to stand. 
So he wants these magistrates to escort him from prison to prove to everyone his innocence. We have the opposite example of this in our own kind of wacky American history. Uh, The name Joseph Smith, name some of us are familiar with, the prophet, so-called prophet of Mormonism. Joseph Smith would flee from one place to another whenever he got in trouble. He was in Kirtland, Ohio, and they started a bank, a fully Mormon-run bank, and the bank failed in time. There was accusations of mismanagement of funds. The bank fails, and in order to avoid arrest, he flees Ohio. Later, he flees, I think, Ohio to Missouri, and then from Missouri to Nauvoo, Illinois, And he's having to flee everywhere the second time because of reports of polygamy. Paul didn't want any cloud over his ministry and his witness. I love this quote I found from one of my study Bibles. It's a wonderful contrast between uh, the likes of Joseph Smith and the Apostle Paul. Quote, The church was founded not by shady Jewish itinerants, who slunk out of town, but by an esteemed Roman citizen. That's why Paul demanded this, that his name would be cleared, and also that there would be protection for the church and for Lydia, protection for the former enslaved fortune teller, for the Philippian jailer, Probably a few inmates as well. That's going to be the core group of your Philippian church plan. But in remembering those names, the fortune teller, the jailer, the inmates, Lydia, we end with the end of Psalm 2. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. They know this blessedness, the happiness, the joy, the wonderful comfort and delight of finding refuge in the Son of God. And again, I think I would predict that next week's sermon is going to be just a huge excursus on that. Do you know that blessedness? Have you taken refuge in Him? Could you say... From a heart of faith, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, would we be convinced of the truth and glory of your gospel, the work 
of your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And would we take refuge in him? Would we hide in him that we might be forgiven and accepted and have everlasting life? That we would never fear condemnation. We would never fear the return of our Lord and the day of judgment. We would never fear him forsaking us or casting us away. But we would see him as our shepherd who carries us forever. Father, would we see this and would it change us? Would it change how we live? Would it change how we speak? Would it change how we love and serve others? Would it change your church? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.